Hello again, and welcome back to the History of Indigenous America. In this episode, we'll be continuing our brief history of the Maya as our prelude to the action of the Quiche Kingdom. Before continuing, I just want to say that sound education was a blast, and I was happy to meet all of you. If you're listening right now, you know who you are. It's always great to meet other podcast creators and listeners, and I hope to bring the history of Indigenous America to more events in the future. Now, with that out of the way, let's resume our story. As I've mentioned previously, the Quiches inherited a very rich culture from other Maya peoples that came before them. I'll admit that I have my own bias here, but Maya intellectual achievements were some of the most spectacular in the Americas, though that's not to say that the rest of the hemisphere didn't have their own share of achievements, including innovations that no Maya ever conceived of. But the Mayas stand uniquely for their own innovations, some of which were created before their counterparts on the other side of the world. In this episode, I'll talk about some of these Maya intellectual achievements, including calendars, mathematics, writing, and art. However, the bad news is that I won't have enough time in this episode to get into the political history that I promised in the last episode. That will have to wait for the next episode. I do want to give these intellectual achievements their own dedicated episode, not only because they're important and interesting on their own, but because they will provide a lot more context to the society that engaged in all this political and international intrigue up to and including the Quiche's own time. Indeed, these intellectual achievements were as important to the Quiche's as they were to the classic Maya. All of these were actively used right up until the Spanish conquest, at which point the Spanish brutally attempted to stamp them out and replace them with Spanish concepts and methods. Perhaps even more tragic were the deaths of many educated people from disease and warfare, whose knowledge died with them. But up until that moment, and even for a while after, the Quiches and other Mayas were still using their calendar, writing, and many other things just as they always had. And thanks to everything they produced that still survives today, we're now able to get a very full and detailed picture of history. First, we'll talk a bit about the calendar. The calendar is perhaps one of the best-known Maya achievements. Lately, people are mostly familiar with the Maya calendar thanks to that 2012 craze a few years back. If you recall, people believed the calendar prophecy that the world would end on December 21, 2012. Fortunately or unfortunately, nothing spectacular happened that day, and we're all still around to talk about it. In reality, the supposed end of the world was simply a side effect of the way the calendar system was set up so the truth is a lot less dramatic. I should add that it's inaccurate to say that there was one single calendar system used by all Mayas in the same manner over the course of many centuries up to the present day. Rarely does anything remain stable for so long. Calendars were tweaked here and there and may have varied from place to place. What I'll describe is a fairly general idea of how the calendar worked. And, rather than being literally a single calendar, the Maya calendar is made up of three calendars, used individually or in combination with each other. These are the Hab and the Tzokin, which are often grouped together into what's called the calendar round, and lastly, the third calendar, the long count. The Tzokin is the name commonly used today for the 260-day calendar. It's frequently referred to as the ritual calendar, as it has the most religious significance. Each present-day Mayan language has its own name for this and the other calendars, though English writers tend to use Tzolkin as the universal name for it, borrowed from the Yucatec Maya language. And in fact, 
Many Mayas today actively use the Tzolkin alongside the Gregorian calendar. The Tzolkin itself is technically made up of two cycles. One is a cycle of 20 named days, and the other is a cycle of 13 numbers. Multiply 20 by 13, and you get the full set of 260 days. Expressing these two cycles in combination yields a date. A date is expressed by the number followed by the day's name. So, today, the day I'm recording this episode, would be 2 Manik. And there won't be another 2 Manik until 260 days from now. Beyond their dating functions, each of the named days has a meaning attached to it, whose interpretations may guide people in choosing their activities and decisions for the day, thus the ritual calendar aspect of the Tzolkin. The days of the Tzolkin were also quite significant when it came to births. One could use the birth date to make prophecies of a newborn's future, but also their birthday would become a part of their name. So you could literally call someone born today to Manik. One of the persistent questions about the Tzolkin is why exactly it was established as a 260-day calendar. Unlike most other calendars humans have created, there's no obvious link to a naturally recurring observable and cyclical phenomenon, and this applies to its 20 named days and 13 numbers as well. Multiple reasons and theories have been cited from both Mayas in recent centuries and from examination of historical records. The possibilities range from the interaction of the numbers alone being significant to the fact that the 260 days correspond quite a bit to the human gestation period. The Tzolkin is estimated to have been in use since over two millennia ago, so the true reason behind its 260 days may be lost on us. Since it's not possible to verify the current Tzolkin date by observing natural phenomena, that suggests that people have been keeping good track of the Tzolkin for a very long time. While the Tzolkin uses its 260-day cycle, the Hab is a calendar based on the solar year, containing 365 days. The Hab was used in parallel with the Tzolkin, and is functionally what you might call more of a civil calendar, keeping track of annual events, holidays, and other significant occasions. However, despite clearly being a solar calendar, the Hab doesn't account for the fact that the solar year isn't quite exactly 365 days. That's the reason why we use leap days today. One Earth orbit around the Sun is more like 365 and a quarter days long. So, over the years, the hub would drift and lose its correspondence with the cycle of the seasons. It is a peculiarity of the calendar, but it's a peculiarity that the Mayas were able to work around. Almanac makers and astronomers certainly would not have been out of a job, needing to calculate the correct dates for solstices, equinoxes, and other annual phenomena. Whereas the Tzolkin is made up of the interlocking 20 and 13 day cycles, the Hab has something corresponding to what we would call months, called Winals. Each Winal contains 20 days. If you're quick at math, you're probably realizing that this means that there would be 5 days left over, not part of a Winal. And indeed, there was a period of 5 days that sat outside of the Winals, which is what experts in calendars would call an intercalary period. These five days were a special short month called Wayeb, which was considered an unlucky time, where people were discouraged from doing much activity at all, lest they be struck by bad luck. Just as the use of the Tzolkin has persisted to this day, some also use the Hab. And if you're wondering, today's Hab date is 15 Sak. Together, the Tzolkin and the Hab are sometimes called the calendar round, in reference to the fact that this combined calendar has an entirely cyclical nature.
that Sulkin and Hobb each cycle independently, but every 52 years, the cycles of both line up with each other. So, you can express a day by its Sulkin date, but since the Sulkin repeats itself every 260 days, how do you disambiguate whether you're referring to a date in this cycle, the previous cycle, or 10 cycles ago? Well, you can cite a day's Hobb date as well. A Tzolkin date from the previous Tzolkin cycle would not have the same Hobb date. Using both calendars to express a single date was very common and provides you with 52 years of unique dates. But again, this is a cycle that repeats itself only every 52 years, which presents a problem when you want to refer to a date more than 52 years before or ahead. That's where the long count comes in. The long count, unlike the calendar round, is not cyclical in the same manner. The long count allows you to disambiguate a date within a period much longer than 52 years. In the time humans have been around, we haven't been able to pinpoint a certain beginning or end to time. So, when humans do develop calendars, which requires them to quantify time in some manner, they have to create arbitrary beginnings or ends in order to start their counts. In today's Gregorian calendar that is used throughout the world, we divide all of time into two halves, before and after the birth of Jesus. The years then extend infinitely into the past and into the future from that point. As another example, the Islamic calendar starts counting from the Hijra, which was the voyage Muhammad took from Mecca to Medina. The Mayas had to make a similar decision with their calendar. Their count of time had to start somewhere, so they developed what we call today the long count. The long count itself is a great period of time that allows one to create a unique, unambiguous state without any confusion from the cyclical calendar round. You might think of it like our present AD or BC, or if you prefer, CE and BCE. The main difference, however, between the long count and the Gregorian calendar is that the long count is intended to have a specific beginning and, depending on your interpretation, may have a specific end. So, when exactly does the long count begin? Well, the long count system that was normally used by the Maya is typically calculated to begin on August 11th, 3114 BC. While the Hab and the Tzolkin were more quotidian calendars, the long count is much more useful in recording history. If you desire to make note of a date that you wanted people to remember hundreds or thousands of years in the future, you would use a long count date. And, thanks to long count dates that have been recorded, as well as their use in tandem with calendar round dates, we're able to reconstruct historical dates with a lot of accuracy. A long count date was specified by how much time has passed since that original day in 3114 BC. Like Gregorian dates, long count dates would be measured by a series of units of time. Let's think about the date I'm recording this episode, Saturday, November 2nd, 2019 AD. We can break this down into era, year, month, day of the week, and date. In order, that's AD, 2019, November, Saturday, 2. The Maya long count calendar operates essentially in just that manner, except using differently defined periods of time. Baktun, a period of 144,000 days. Katun, a period of 7,200 days. Tun, a period of 360 days. Winal, a period of 20 days, and Kin, which is one day. Using those elements, a complete date can be formed. To indulge your curiosity, I'll provide you with the complete long count date of the day I'm recording this episode. Today is 
13 Baktun, 0 Katun, 6 Tun, 17 Wino, 7 Kin. Now, despite its purpose as a solution to the long-term ambiguities of the calendar round, the long count isn't perfect. For example, how would one calculate a date before the beginning of the long count? Well, one solution is to put another long count before the current one, though then you have the new problem of figuring out how to distinguish one long count from the other. But in any case, the question arises, wouldn't all that suggest that the long count has an end? And this is where I explain the 2012 issue to you. Some Mayas have said, and this includes the author of the Popol Vuh, that the long count represents the current world we live in. The previous world, which existed before the start of the current long count, had its time divided into baktuns as well. But it was only 13 baktuns long. So, assuming that this world will last as long as the previous world, then the Gregorian date for when 13 baktuns would have passed was December 21st, 2012, and it was indeed written that we would enter the next world then. This implied end of the world was probably symbolic or metaphorical, and after all, we can never know for sure or agree on what is said in a prophetic religious text. But many in the present day took it to mean that the world would literally end that day. The Mayas were smart, but they didn't have any sort of special power to determine when the world would end. And so that day passed incident-free. For reference, Mayas today who use the Maya calendars regarded it as merely a very special occasion. Since we're all still around, that brings us to a decision. Did the long count really end or not? You could start a new cycle of 13 baktuns, but the simplest solution is to just keep the original count going. The long count date I read earlier assumes this is the case. And indeed, there are records of people mentioning events happening many more baktuns well into the future, contradicting the supposed end of the world after 13 baktuns. Coming off the subject of calendars, I thought it would be logical to follow it up with the subject of math. Of course, calendar dates are expressed with numbers, and you're probably wondering how the Mayas wrote their numbers. Maya numerals are pretty easy to grasp, and I bet I can teach you how to write them in just a couple of minutes. The basis is simple. One is written as one dot, two is written as two dots, and three is written as three dots. I think you get the picture so far. But five is written as a horizontal bar. 6 is a bar with 1 dot above it, 7 is a bar with 2 dots above it, let's skip ahead to 10, that is written as a stack of 2 bars, 15 is written as a stack of 3 bars, 16 is written as a stack of 3 bars with 1 dot above it. I think that by this point you've mastered the basics of writing Maya numbers, they are all pretty much written using a series of bars and dots. But how do we write larger numbers? It might be slightly harder for us to grasp, but it's still pretty simple. While we use a base 10 system today, Maya numbers use a base 20 system, so each place in a number represents powers of 20. Our powers of 10 that form the basis of our current number system are 1, 10, 100, 1000, and so on. Whereas for the Mayas, their equivalents would have been 1, 20, 400, 8000, and so on. It might seem a bit strange to count this way, but in fact, base 20 systems have been very common all across the world. And if you can remember from earlier in the episode, this base 20 system appears in other places. There are 20 named days in the Tzolkin, and we know in both the Hab and the Long Count is a period of 20 days. So let's say we want to express the number 504 using Maya numerals. 
We can start by breaking down the number into these powers of 20. We can determine there is one 400. We can then determine there are five 20s. And lastly, we can determine there are four ones. Large Maya numbers were written as a vertical sequence of rows with the highest place value at the top. So to write 504, we write five bars, then another five bars beneath it, and finally four dots at the bottom. All things considered, I have to admit this is a lot better than Roman numerals. Compared to our Arabic numerals, simple arithmetic with Maya numerals is very intuitive. If you've got a piece of paper nearby, try writing 7 and 2. You can already see how easy it is to determine what 7 plus 2 is. All you have to do is add the extra two dots to your 7, which immediately yields the numeral 9. And it's also just as easy to do 7 minus 2. Just write the numeral 7 and get rid of two dots. When you're calculating something like 11 plus 8, and let's pretend you're a kid just learning math for the first time, all you have to do is write an additional 8 dots, making sure to turn your line of dots into a bar whenever you've written 5 of them. There is one final element to Maya numerals I haven't discussed yet. That is the number 0. We may take the number 0 for granted today, but the understanding of the concept is actually fairly recent in much of the world. Before developing zero, people only had the concept of nothing, and I mean literally nothing, so there wasn't even a number attached to it. But zero is, mathematically speaking, more than merely nothing, and turns out to be a very unique and special number required for complex calculations. Very early on, Maya mathematicians grasped the concept of the mathematical zero. We know from inscriptions that they were already writing zeros in the last few centuries BC, which potentially makes the Maya the first people in the world to use zero. In practice, the ancient Maya used their zero just like our modern zero. Though a variety of glyphs were used to write zero throughout the classic period, by the time of the Spanish conquest, a universal glyph was settled upon, which resembles a shell. So, if we wanted to write the number 8002, we would write the following using our base 20 numerals. One bar, then a shell, then another shell, and then finally two dots. With this complete written number system, the Mayas were able to perform calculations for a variety of things. They may be as complex as astronomical calculations, or something simpler like keeping count of goods. So, now that I've described what the system of writing numbers was, it's time for the system of writing words. The Mayas famously created a complete system to write language, and they used it quite a bit. One important thing to keep in mind is that the Mayas never achieved universal literacy with their writing system. This was essentially the case for the whole supposedly literate world before printing presses made true mass literacy even a remote possibility. All in all, only a fraction of the Maya population got the opportunity to learn to read and write, and they would have been part of the richer and more elite slice of society, in particular the priesthood. If you've seen Maya writing before, you know how complex and detailed it is, and not particularly well suited to jotting down quick notes, at least at first glance. The written word was certainly more special and exclusive to them than it is to us with our mass literacy and simple characters, and accordingly, Maya writing was almost always an exercise in art and calligraphy as well. You can see the same phenomenon in the history of the Latin alphabet, where books written by hand centuries ago were valuable objects, created with perfect calligraphy and adorned with illustrations. Another thing to remember is that the Mayas were not the only people in Mesoamerica with writing. 
Across Mesoamerica, there were various systems, and they probably all descended from a single invention, though there's a debate as to who invented it, and it may have not been the Mayas themselves. However, Maya writing is considered the system that ultimately ended up becoming the most flexible and developed. The earliest writing in Mesoamerica was pictographic and ideographic, meaning there were symbols representing whole things or ideas. This is a practice that has emerged all across the world. We actually still use pictograms and ideograms today, thousands of years after the first humans anywhere started writing. For example, we commonly use symbols to represent things like hotels, airports, and bathrooms. These symbols aren't directly communicating the English words hotel, airport, and bathroom to us, but instead they're communicating those concepts with abstracted shapes. This is why these symbols facilitate communication across languages and are often used in areas with a lot of tourism. You don't actually have to know the local words to understand what the symbols are trying to tell you. The communication is totally on a conceptual level. You just have to be familiar with the symbols, which are frequently intuitive. And there is a decent chance that people in Mesoamerica speaking different languages were able to communicate with each other using shared pictograms. Pictograms and ideograms are often considered proto-writing, or not even writing, as they may be a little inflexible. After all, this kind of system needs a new symbol for every new word or concept. Some may also be inclined to consider them mere drawings, though fairly standardized ones at that. However, pictograms and ideograms are more powerful than one might initially think. I've already mentioned the example of our present-day symbols, which we can all admit have served us well throughout our lives, and function just the same across different spoken languages. But it's also possible to record more complex concepts, or even entire stories with pictograms and ideograms, and recording information using these sorts of symbols is even found in parts of the Americas beyond Mesoamerica. Since pictograms and ideograms don't really correspond exactly to spoken language, how they should be read is often somewhat up to the reader, and in a sense serve as a very standardized mnemonic. However, the information that can be stored in a series of pictograms and ideograms can indeed be quite complex. Our current day emoji just so happened to be a kind of pictographic system too, and we're collectively exploring the limits of what information we can communicate with them. We already have people trying to write whole novels using emoji, and who knows how they will continue to evolve in the future. Beyond the initial pictograms and ideograms, some Mesoamerican writing later developed logograms. Logographic writing uses symbols that represent whole words or morphemes, and in the context of the evolution of writing, tend to emerge out of simplified or abstracted versions of pictograms and ideograms. And by the way, if you don't know what a morpheme is, it's the smallest piece of a word that has a meaning. For example, Mesoamerica is a word, but it contains two morphemes, meso and America. In a logographic system, Mesoamerica could be expressed as two symbols representing those two morphemes, rather than using 11 letters. Modifiers of words, such as un and ing, are also morphemes. Combine morphemes in various ways, and you can craft new words. With the transition over to writing morphemes in addition to whole words, writing now had a great deal of flexibility in adapting to newer words and especially to expressing spoken language verbatim. The best known example today of a very logographic writing system would be Chinese writing, and Chinese manages to be totally sufficient in expressing spoken language. 
But ultimately, Maya writing in particular evolved to additionally feature symbols that express syllables, becoming a fully phonetic system. The final evolution of Maya writing may be compared with modern Japanese writing, which is a blend of logographic characters borrowed from Chinese writing, as well as local characters that represent syllables. With this addition of syllabic writing, words could now be written solely as they are said. Someone could invent a total nonsense word and still be able to write it down without problem. Still, both approaches to writing functioned in parallel, and frequently in combination. To illustrate this, I'll use the classic example of the word balam, meaning jaguar. Now, given that this podcast isn't a visual medium, that makes it a little tougher to explain this to you. However, to make it easier to follow along, I've uploaded an image showing how to write balam to the show's Patreon page at patreon.com slash history of indigenous America. So give it a look if you're able to. Don't worry, the post will be free for all listeners. This is just the only place I can host an image for you until I stop procrastinating on a full website. Now, to continue. The oldest and logographic manner to write balam would have been to write the glyph or character for the whole word, which resembles the head of a jaguar. In some contexts, you might have preferred to write it this way. However, with the advent of the syllabic writing, you could also write balam using glyphs representing syllables. Written Maya syllables were composed of a consonant followed by a vowel, or a vowel alone. So, for example, the sound ni is represented by a single glyph, and so is the sound u, which is just a vowel with no consonant. Now, let's break down balam into syllables. Ba, lam. Ba follows the form of consonant vowel, and we've got a glyph for that. Lam is a little trickier, though. It's consonant vowel consonant. What Maya writing does in those cases is break down those types of spoken syllables into two different syllable glyphs, in this case, la and ma. Now, I know, that might not make that much sense for you at first, but illiterate Maya would have understood that the word isn't literally written as ba la ma, and while reading would know to omit that a from the final syllable, yielding balam. So, when balam is written using these characters representing syllables, the end result is a larger word glyph composed of these three syllabic elements. However, there's still more. As I've just explained, a written Maya word could be purely logographic, or purely syllabic. But you could also combine the two in a single word and create alternative spellings. For whatever reason, when writing the logographic balam, you may want to make it extra clear what word you're writing, especially if someone less literate misreads your jaguar as another big cat. In order to prevent confusion in your readers and ensure they understand that you're trying to say balam, you can also append just one of the syllable glyphs to this jaguar head glyph to make it clearer. So, you could attach the ba syllable to the jaguar head to tell your readers this word starts with ba, so you know I'm talking about balam. Or you could attach ma to convey pretty much the same thing. You could even attach both ba and ma to the glyph, which makes the word especially clear while still using that jaguar head glyph. Maya writing has a whole series of placement rules for how to construct words using individual characters or glyphs, which is more than I could explain in this podcast. But if you're able to see the example image for the syllabic balam, you'll note that the la character is front and center, with ba to its left and ma below it.
In practice, Maya writing was a blend of logographic and syllabic writing, changing over time and across contexts. We've even found some sounds to have multiple glyphs associated with them, so for the modern reader reviewing centuries of Maya writing, there are a lot of different spelling possibilities to consider. With this complete writing system, literate Maya scribes would record all sorts of information. The most common examples we can see today are on monuments and pottery. Monuments, as you can imagine, would frequently commemorate rulers and other people of note, and of course, the dates associated with them. Writing on pottery obviously would have been less monumental, and could feature things like short religious stories. Thanks to these two durable sources of texts, we've been able to gain a significant understanding of the classic Maya world. Beyond those other two sources, the Mayas did also write books. They didn't have bound books or scrolls, but they did have books made with long pieces of paper folded like accordions. Mesoamerican paper was typically made of a mate, a type of tree bark. Like books today, Maya books would have covered a range of genres, astronomical tables, almanacs, zodiacs, records to simply keep track of goods, and even complete works of literature in the vein of the Popol Vuh. Unfortunately, we have few traces of Maya books today. Altogether, there are only four confirmed original books of any genre predating the Spanish conquest, mainly on astronomical and religious subjects. They're collectively referred to as the Maya Codices, or Codex, in singular form. What happened to the other Maya books? Unfortunately, they've been lost either to the elements or frequently due to deliberate destruction by the Spanish, deeming the works unchristian. You might be wondering what languages the Maya were writing down. Well, any Mayan language could have been written down, since the syllable characters covered all possibilities pretty well. Though, the end result would obviously look different depending on each language's own vocabulary. But in terms of the classic era, what was typically the case is that texts were written in a literary language, which we call Classic Maya. Classic Maya may have been a spoken lingua franca as well, meaning it was a shared language that various Maya language speakers used to communicate with each other. This language probably evolved into the Cholti language, which went extinct during the colonial era, but whose speakers were in the same geographic era of some of the most influential cities of the classic period centuries earlier. I'll end this episode by talking about art and architecture. Obviously, this is a broad topic, so I'll have to be brief about everything. And we can't forget that aesthetic styles are constantly changing. Art from the 2nd century is totally different from art from the 11th century. I won't get into style specifics, and I'll keep things very general. One of the unfortunate things about art and architecture is that only the most durable works survive, and that's a problem common to nearly all art past a certain age. Much of what still remains today are works set in stone, literally. Buildings and monuments, pottery, jewelry, sculptures, and other handiworks. Therefore, art made with organic or less durable materials, like paintings, fabric, and woodwork, is frequently lost. We may never get a full picture of what these sorts of artworks were like, but at least we have a lot of other things that have survived, and they were certainly made with skilled hands. The most obvious physical legacy that the ancient Mayas left was their architecture, and within that we have their famous pyramids. The center of a Maya city typically contained a number of pyramids, large and small, each of them normally capped with a temple. Functionally, Pyramids would serve as religious buildings, but were demonstrations of a ruler's power and ability to construct works. 
Rarely was a pyramid ever constructed in one go. Each subsequent ruler would build additional layers of pyramids to existing pyramids. So, if you were to slice an average Maya pyramid like a cake, you would find a series of smaller pyramids within, each built over the course of many years and many rulers. And before you think that people lived on top of pyramids, there were plenty of other types of buildings that were constructed. Palaces, as well as other kinds of important buildings, were more conventional-looking, flat-topped buildings, built with stone. Many examples still exist today. Meanwhile, everyone else would have lived in simpler structures made of brick, wood, and other cheaper materials, with thatched roofs. Maya architects were extensive users of corbel arches and their more important buildings. While a true arch has a round appearance, a corbel arch is triangular. You can still see examples of corbel arches throughout the region. Like today's architects, ancient Maya architects would sometimes like to experiment beyond the usual evolution of prevailing architectural styles. The palace of the city of Palenque has a unique four-story tower, and the pyramid of the magician in the city of Uxmal has a rounded, almost oval-shaped base, as opposed to the otherwise ubiquitous rectangular bases. Maya architects were not what you'd call utilitarians, so large buildings were normally adorned with sculptures, carvings, and engravings. Maya buildings may look old and gray today, but in their time, these buildings were painted brightly in white, red, and other colors, and the aforementioned adornments would have typically been painted in their own colors as well. A common work of architecture found in almost any Maya city of significance was a ball court. Throughout Mesoamerica, people played a game in which people would hit a large rubber ball, using their hips and elbows, and never their hands, to keep a ball in play and eventually try to get it to pass through a ring acting as a goal. It was probably a sport people even played casually on their own, but a city's main ball court was where the sport ascended to ritual significance. Something almost all ball courts have in common is that, when viewed from above, they're shaped like a capital letter I. Interestingly though, ball courts come in all sorts of sizes. The ball court of Chichen Itza is what you might call stupidly big. When you consider that the goal of the game is to try to get the ball through the stone ring using limited parts of your body, the fact that this ball court is 30 meters wide and that the stone ring is 7 meters above you and barely big enough for the ball doesn't give you much hope. Apart from buildings, one of the most common monumental public works were stelae. A stela is a carved, tall block of stone. Stelae ornately depicted rulers, gods, or both, and frequently included inscriptions commemorating these rulers and gods. Today, you can still find many stelae in the central plazas of old Maya cities, and their inscriptions have been considerably helpful in reconstructing history. On a smaller scale, the Maya were voracious potters and sculptors. Common, everyday pottery was plain, but the nicest works of pottery were typically painted with great deal and written on. As I mentioned earlier in the episode, some works of pottery had entire illustrated stories on them. The category of carvings, sculptures, and handiworks is almost boundless, ranging from figures of people, to stone and obsidian weaponry, to everyday tools, to musical instruments, and beyond. Some of the more interesting examples of art, though, include things like architectural models, ceremonial scepters with multiple blades and heads carved into them, and even sandals made of copper. Those sandals certainly sound like something to brag about, but probably aren't the most comfortable thing to wear. Jewelry, as expected, was a means to flaunt wealth and store value. Contrary to what a lot of people may believe, gold was not particularly common in Maya art, nor was it particularly valued, although there are plenty of examples of golden art. 
And in any case, metalworking was not that big for the Maya. Metalworking was an innovation that came up from the Andes, but never became as common in Mesoamerica as it was in the Andes. On the other hand, stones like jade, obsidian, and turquoise, as well as red spondylus shells, were very highly valued in jewelry. Jewelry presents us with some of the best evidence of extensive trade and commerce, as these precious materials were only found in specific areas, but were otherwise used in jewelry all over the place. The classic example is that of turquoise. The historical and archaeological consensus is that there was little to no turquoise occurring in Mesoamerica, and that it had to be transported and traded for mines in what is now the southwestern U.S. Jewelry included necklaces and ornaments for clothing, but also all sorts of pieces that would go into piercings, from the ears to the penis. Wealthier Mayas would also sometimes drill holes into their teeth and fill them with precious stones and metals. And although I did mention that fabric doesn't keep well over the centuries, we can at least surmise that ancient Maya textiles on the whole were very good. As is common with much of the Americas, in fact, the tradition of weaving ornate multicolored textiles remains to this day. Don't fool yourself into thinking that current-day Maya clothing looks just like the clothing that would have been used centuries ago. Designs and fashions have evolved. But present-day textiles can trace a progression and evolution going back a long time. I'm sure I'm forgetting other elements of Maya art worth mentioning. But like I said, it's a huge topic, and I recommend that you research it further if you're curious. Anyway, I'll pause things here for now. I hope that all these descriptions have helped to provide a better picture of Maya intellectual culture. As we keep moving forward and onward into Quiche history, you'll see some of these themes return, and you'll also get to hear a bit about how they might have been slightly different in other Mesoamerican societies that the Mayas interacted with. Before closing out the episode, I'd like to add that the show will now also be available on Google Podcasts and Stitcher, if those are your preferred platforms. In the case of Stitcher, if you don't see it there yet, try checking again tomorrow, but I'm hoping the approval process will be speedy. Thank you again for listening to the show, and be sure to tune in next time when we return to hear about the fate of the classic Maya. Mm-hmm.